the AI has gotten so good at predicting our behaviors that it's actually starting to control us. It's actually starting to change who we are. This is not science fiction. This is actually really happening. And it's going to be such a paradigm shift that it will fracture your consciousness if you're not keeping up with it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Feedback Loop, where we keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they are impacting the transformation of consciousness and culture from the individual to society at large. I'm your host, Stephen Parton, coming at you from Singularity University. This week, our guest is Gray Scott, a futurist and techno-philosopher who has appeared in numerous publications and television programs where he discusses his thoughts on emerging technologies and the trajectory of humanity. Now, we really hit a wide range of topics in this one, ranging from the simulation theory and self-aware artificial intelligence all the way to Terrence McKenna and psychedelics. Normally, at this point, I try to provide a bit of background information on the topics we discussed to ensure we're all on the same page as you listen to this discussion, but Gray really took us thoroughly through his ideas, so I'm thinking it's best to just jump right in rather than attempt to shortchange what is an otherwise already very robust conversation. And as always, if this podcast strikes a chord with you and you want to keep hearing content from us, give us a rating, share us on your social media, or shoot us a message at Singularity radio at su.org this lets us know that this content is important to you it helps guide what content we make for you in the future and it helps us to best serve you our passionate su community members and now everyone please welcome gray scott tell me about what you do gray what what's your passion So I am a futurist and a techno-philosopher. My job right now, my job is to popularize futurism. That's what I'm trying to do. Um, It's what I've been doing for the last seven years. And primarily the way that I've been doing that is using my experience as a photographer, because I was a photographer before I was a futurist, um, to sort of craft this idea that um, we're becoming a digitized species. species, And so because of that, our image is being archived. Our presentation to the world is being archived. And it's being archived probably forever at this point. And I don't think people take that as serious as I've taken it. And it led me into this idea of reflection um, of image. Maybe it's because I started as an artist when I was younger, but what I found is that as I started to really look deeply into this field and into where we're headed, it's clear to me now that we are simulating and we are mirroring, um, this internal unconscious landscape that has been with us from the very beginning of time. Is that concerning to you or does that excite you? I find it fascinating. I'm, I'm not concerned um, because it is natural. You know, I've, I've said many times and part of my message has been that nature is technological and technology is natural. Um, I am not a dualist. I don't, I don't subscribe to the idea that there is 
robots versus humanity um, or technology versus nature. It is all the same thing. It is a continuum. Um, my view of this and the, the reality that we find ourselves in is that this is a computational cosmos and that we are one line of code in a very complex algorithm that is still being written, that's still being written. And so if you can step out of the old narratives that have been created for us, and I'm, I'm talking about um, history, religion, and all those things, um, and even some philosophies, if you can sort of step out of those, out of the human-centric uh, way of viewing the cosmos, and if you can view the cosmos in a cosmic scale, then you start to realize that we are just one tiny sliver of this enormous computational thing that is happening. We don't even have a word for it yet. I mean, cosmos uh, is still kind of a mystery for most people. If you say the cosmos, people sort of look at you and their eyes cross. Yeah, I was going to say, is there a computational in-game that you see with that? Are there forces at work in the cosmos that you think are driving our algorithm or all of the algorithms towards? Yes. And the reason I say that is because my way of viewing this reality that we find ourselves in is, is the idea of the continuum, that we are only one part of this story, this narrative, and that the new narrative may be even more complex than we ever imagined. And this sort of ties into where I think we are headed. And, and, and what I've said um, quite often is that even if the reality that we find ourselves in now is not a simulation, we will and we are headed towards creating um, simulations in the future that are, that are going to be so real that we cannot, literally cannot tell the difference. And it's going to happen faster than anyone could imagine because it, you know the, the idea of exponential growth and exponential change and all of that, it's actually faster than we anticipated. Um, you know, I, I, a lot of futurists have been saying that that um, we've been way too conservative with our predictions, and so when you ask what the end game is, I think there's only one direction that this is heading, and it, you see it everywhere. You see it in 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 every um, corner of the digital world. You you see that we are crunching, that we are miniaturizing, that we are simulating and we are mirroring the human condition. And because of that, um, the way I have sort of seen the idea of the singularity is not that it's just um, faster than human intelligence. The, the way that I sort of see this now is that we are, for some reason, now I don't know if there's an intention to the cosmos, if, if, if there is a reason to this, I'm just saying that it seems that this is in the code for us to head this direction. So I don't want to get sort of, you know, who is the simulator? I don't want to get off on that track yet. What I'm saying is that it seems that the code suggests that we are being funneled towards a smaller and more compact and dense uh, end game and hyper-realistic in, in that space. Um, the the idea for me is 
that we're moving towards uh, a simulated singularity. So, and I mean that in the context of the cosmolo- cosmological context, meaning that all of that data and all of that crunching is leading us into tighter and more dense um, spaces. Computers the size of universities now on the size um, of a, 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 a grain of uh, sand. So that just suggests that we are going to continue uh, to crunch further and further um, down. And as we crunch, the resolution is getting tighter and more realistic. So as a philosopher, is that uh, is that a direction that you feel like you're goal-oriented towards? Yes. <laughs> so my goal right now is to sort of see it for what it is without all of the old narratives that we sort of mentioned before. I'm not interested in creating a new deity. I'm not interested in creating a new god. I'm not interested in creating a new church. I'm not interested in any of those narratives that have a separation between the person um, viewing and the reflection that's being viewed, if that makes sense. Yeah. In that objective view, are there things that are arising, however, that strike you as important values or things to lift up or perhaps obstacles or things to be wary of? Well, I think more and more people as the digitization um, continues, more and more people are becoming unconsciously aware that there is very, very little difference between us. And if you take that further into um, the unconscious realm uh, and the collective unconscious idea, I think the the digitization, um, the era of digitization that we're in now, is the unconscious, the collective unconscious being crystallized and formed uh, smoothly enough for us to finally see our true reflection. And what I mean here is, you know, um, we've gone through, um, throughout our history, we've gone through phases where, whether it was the ancient Greeks um, or the Romans or uh, in Egypt where they were using polished stone or polished brass, we have gone through periods where we have used objects to see ourselves. And it may have started with royalty. But eventually, I think around the 1300s was when it really started, um, the idea of the mirror was really the first um, switch that got triggered in humans, where it wasn't that we knew we were individual, but we could finally see our individual traits. And it caused a fracture which, which is interesting because what, what do mirrors do? Um, but it caused this fracture in the unconscious where suddenly privacy was, was a big deal, where royalty wanted to be separated, right? Where they wanted to have privacy. And we're going through the second switch now. We're going through the second portal now where um, the camera, the smartphone, the laptop is a more densely uh, accurate, um, a more high resolution version of the mirror. And it's 
the reason it's different is because the mirror was a personal reflection between you and your reflection. The digital mirror, which is what I've been sort of how I've been describing it, the digital mirror is not between you and your reflection. It is between you and the world. That's what makes this different. We're not just viewing our own reflection. We're viewing the reflection plus all of the information that comes from other people, how they see us, what they think they see. I was just going to say a world with all those reflections seems terribly disorienting, <laughs> and it, 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 which I think we can all attest to. It's interesting what you were saying makes me think a lot about, um, in some ways, the tenets of Eastern philosophy as they clash against maybe our evolutionary urges. So you're talking about this idea of a mirror, and I immediately went to narcissism and the idea of you know a bolstered ego. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts towards how that mirror might play into the idea of of identity in a positive way or maybe in a negative way and how that's a struggle we go through. Well, the thing to keep in mind here is that narcissism is only seeing the reflection on the surface. What we're describing here is something much deeper. We're describing the reflection of the unconscious mind and the internal landscape. Narcissists only go to the surface. What's happening to us now is that the the surface has been broken open. And so suddenly we know more about the brain. We know more about um, our bodies, how our brains work, behavioral modification, uh, predictive analytics, uh, predictive AI. We 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 are cracking open the surface, and we have, we have, we are reflecting what's truly inside. So, even the even the people that are stuck just on the surface using the digital mirror right now, and I'm talking about the people who are using it to, um, you know, improve their brands or become influencers or all or anything within that realm of sort of the vanity, the digital vanity world. Um, That's not what we're talking about here. What what we're talking about here is we have reached a state now where the, the AI has gotten so good at predicting our behaviors that it's actually starting to control us. It's actually starting to change who we are. It's starting to um, prime us into doing things that maybe the unconscious is aware of, but we're just not aware of on the surface. So that's what I, you know, when I say the future is a portal inward, um, it is computational and ancient. And I mean, um, the computational part of this is that this, this was in the code uh, in the beginning. You know, all of that information was there in the Big Bang. Um, and it is unfolding. And that's the reason I say it's ancient, because um, we are the new ones here. The cosmos is much, much older than we are. We are the infants here. We are the infants in this digital revolution. Um, and we are just waking up and realizing that the, that nature itself is geometric and made of code. And the people that are starting to realize that are starting to wake into a new reality that is, in in a lot of ways, feels like a psychedelic trip. It feels like what people report 
when they use magic mushrooms or when they're using LSD or when they're using um, when they're when they're having deep ayahuasca experiences. Um, it is a wholeness of thinking. Yeah. Do you think that that's something Silicon Valley sourced when they kind of had their free love in the 60s and 70s and we had this uh, psychedelic time period that in many ways was the the seed of the internet? Well, now we're about to go down the Terrence McKenna rabbit hole, which um, <laughs> I mean, he, he's he without Terrence McKenna, you can't have Steve Jobs. Seriously, without uh, Alan Watts, you can't have Steve Jobs. I mean, you 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 have to have people who have gone and looked at themselves in that mirror, whatever that reflective surface may be, whether it was uh, a psychedelic, which is also a mirror or whether it was a digital uh, structure. And you cannot have the kind of innovation that we're seeing right now without those people um, having those experiences and reporting back to us, saying that there is something deeper than the surface, deeper than culture, that culture is the veil that keeps us within the illusion, that what is true is beyond culture. And without those people, um, no, Silicon Valley would not have happened. Um, but this is what I mean. This is what I mean about an algorithm, though. Um, it is unfolding in a way that seems planned, um, although that could just be us finding patterns um, in the cosmos. Although there are so many patterns in the cosmos that just are beyond coincidence that it's i find it as i research more and more i, I find it harder and harder to believe that this is a coincidence all of these things and i just for as a side note um i live in new york city but i bought a house in, in uh, connecticut and started working uh, with trees and was really surprised at how each specific species of tree has a numerical growth pattern. And it just triggered something in me. That was actually right about the time that I really started working with this idea of the, the geometric and sort of technological nature um, of the cosmos. And it made sense to me finally. I, I finally realized that, um, that all of those things have codes built into them. And we have codes built into us. And so what's the purpose of that? what's the reason? Is there a reason? I mean, you know, th these are all the deep philosophical questions that I guess have plagued humans since the very beginning. But the difference is now is that we have enormous amounts of um, data to back up these things. It's not just guessing. It's not just guessing anymore. We, we have the data to prove that these things are real. Um, and we're using advanced um, algorithms to dive into the unconscious mind in a way that a majority of us can't really even fathom. Are you thinking about that as a deeper integration between mind and machine? Is that where you're going with that? Or what technology would you be referring to for now? Or are you thinking near future? Well, there are a couple of examples. Um, so the University of Kyoto, um, maybe five or six years ago, had had proven that they could show test subjects uh, crude images, 
let's say, a black cross or a black circle, and using EEG and fMRI systems, they could output that on a computer screen. Okay, so they could show what the person was seeing. It was still a little pixelated, but this this was progress. And I made a video on my YouTube page, I think it was about six years ago, where I said that um, this was the beginning of us being able to record our dreams and that in the future we would have a dream economy. And and so we know we're headed towards there. Um, and I think it was in the last year they came out with an update to this to this idea and the University of Kyoto. And, and they have now been able to show test subjects images of animals and they're able to output those images on a screen. But that's not what's interesting about this. It's not so much that they could do that because they've already proven that they could they could output what the person was seeing. They would remove the image and then ask the person to remember what they had just seen, and it would still output. I mean, we're talking about memory recording, memory output into a visual system, a digital system. So this ties back into the psychedelic idea that what's happening is we are tapping into whatever goes on in that whole brain thinking that is manifesting into the real world now is becoming tangible it's not a trip anymore <laughs> it's not just a trip anymore this is a real tangible thing we're digitizing the psychedelic experience right now and that i think is the is the next level up into whatever this next phase of our humanity is going to be. So do we co-opt that? I mean, does that get co-opted into like a, an AI system that then becomes a, a second voice in our heads that says, hey, this is what you're thinking about subconsciously? Well, see, I think pe- people keep descri- describing AI as this sort of separate thing from us. And this is what I said in the beginning of the interview. I, I don't think there's anything separate about it. And I think what's happening is, is that AI is the new I, if that makes sense, is the new visual system. It is the new collective unconscious made manifest, made visible, made real. So, and it's collective. It's not just a singular um, one-to-one correlation, my unconscious, your unconscious. It's all of our collective unconscious made manifest and it will have a voice it will have a visual system it will reflect i love that idea of of this being the new visual eye but the visual eye you know took millions of years through evolution where it can be argued that this is is somehow different than that natural process in that we are engineering it you know technology for example is a very rigid fine tuned machine in many ways that's its beauty it's it's like kind of like logic incarnate um but with biochemistry you know for instance when we have a thought we have synaptic firing we have these kind of chemical spills inside of our mind that that may push us towards a certain recollection or behavior but even though there's that structure there's a lot of randomness a lot of variables there's hormones genes you know how we're feeling because of what we recently ate and that combination can give us unexpected results that can you know potentially even surprise us like we we might do something as a result of this combination or this random biochemistry that surprises ourselves but if you can just dial that in or something we engineered is there potentially something that we're cutting out of the system in that 
rigidity that um, technology provides. Well, let's let's back up for a second. So, the smaller um, view of AI would lead us to believe that it is precise, that it is um, correlated, that it is um, predictable. But if you take a wider view of AI and not uh, reduce down to the individual codes, because if we're reducing to individual codes, yes, it is precise because it's only a, a very small sliver of what's coming. But when you open your view up to all of the AI that's out there, it's really messy. There's conflict. There's polarity. Um, and so what I'm saying here is that the difference between what's going on biologically, the way that you just described it, and what's going on holistically in the AI community, there's no difference. It is messy. It is complex. It's fractured. Um, you know, if, if, if you had just been introduced to what, what, what's going on on this planet digitally, it would seem schizophrenic because it's all over the place. And so I know people are going to hate to hear this. When AI becomes self-aware, uh, this is something I've said a lot and I've got a lot of pushback against this, but that is inevitable that, that, a, that AI, artificial intelligence, will eventually become self-aware. It's what we're gearing it towards. We're teaching it to see. We're teaching it to view the world, make assessments, um, crunch things down into their smallest components, uh, and look holistically at the same time. So when self, when AI becomes self-aware, even if it's just um, remotely self-aware, it will start integrating. There will be an integration. It will start pulling things on its own for its own purposes. Yeah. Do, do you think that part of the unfolding of that evolutionary urge or that cosmic force that you were talking about in the beginning, um, that algorithm, do you think it is leading towards a direction where the AI does actually become self-aware in a way that includes kind of like the nebulous capricious aspects of the human condition? Or is it, it, or is it something that is almost like an upgrade in logic or reason towards something that has less variability and is, and is more directed. The only way I can describe it is a psychedelic experience. I, I think that the, I think that AI will be more in tune with the, the psychedelic experience than humans in sort of the average um, way that they see the world. When you look at deep mind, when you see the images that deep mind are, is producing, that I think is more in tune with what AI consciousness will look like, where it's morphing constantly, where the references uh, in a face are millions of different objects in an instant, um, which touches on the way that humans sort of process the world when they're having psychedelic experiences. I think the AI is going to see the world that way because there's going to be so much information that it's constantly morphing new ideas on top of new ideas on top of new ideas. And so it's almost impossible for us to say that even if we augmented our minds, that we'd see the world the way that an AI would. I just don't think that we could even get there. Uh, first of all, it would, drive you cra you, you, it would drive you crazy. You would have a psychotic break because the, we're not biologically ready 
to have that kind of that much information that quickly running across our minds um, and our neural networks will not be able to process this new level of consciousness that quickly. Uh, and we've are, we're already seeing it. People are, are really having a hard time with technology right now. Um, and that's without implanting something in your brain to connect you directly with the internet. I, I, I just don't think people are ready for that biologically. As you mentioned that, um, it, it kind of arose in my mind as this great irony that perhaps in some ways the AI is going to be more open-minded because it can hold multiple thoughts in its mind at once, whereas a human is kind of bound to these belief systems and these um almost this you know dualistic this very black white right wrong decision making that helps it navigate reality but also in many ways it's kind of a prison because it keeps you from being able to see the full picture and having maybe a more um, reasonable approach to things and i could see that being one of the reasons that we're having such a crisis of consciousness right now is that technology has already kind of started to bleed that lesson into humanity by, you know, shattering borders, for instance, and, you know, creating, challenging these belief systems where if you can, if you can access a memory through a fMRI machine, then, you know, ideas of spirituality start to come into question. You know, we start to have different questions about, well, is there a soul that's keeping track of the memory or is it a magnetic resonance machine, <laughs> like, you know, tapping into just some electrons. So yeah. it, it, I just find it really fascinating that it, in some ways that idea might've already found its way into, into society and, and that forceful reckoning with multiple ideas at once might be a little bit of what we're struggling against. I agree. The way that I look at this now, and the, the reason I say that the future is a portal inward is that technology is the externalization of mind it is it is the vulc it, it is the vulcanization of whole mind thinking um meaning that we are taking millions and millions of years of evolution and crunching it down and crystallizing it manifesting it into actuators and moving parts and code and algorithm and silicon and making that a real object in the real world that we can hold and touch. And that is beyond magic. That is, that is a new level of consciousness that we're, we have just hardly begun to even describe and that's why I'm so fascinated with the digital philosophers right now that are, are talking about this and have been talking about it for, let's say, the last 25 years, uh, which is still fairly new. I just find that when people start describing technology on that level, not the bevel on the phone, not you know what new version of Tesla, you know the Tesla car is coming out, what new Apple update is coming out, that's not what this is about. What what I'm getting at here is that there is something much greater, something much more cosmic that is happening on this planet right now. And it is so miraculous that the people who are looking directly into that reflection are having a hard time just getting it out and describing it. And the work that I'm doing right now 
I feel like when I focus on this idea of technology as a reflection of some new level of consciousness, something greater than just a bunch of algorithms and actuators, that this is the cracking open of the cosmic secret that has been with us from the very beginning of time. That's why I say it's computational and ancient. It's It's been here the whole time. We are, we are the sleepwalkers that are just starting to wake up to what's in the room. And so when I say to people, the future is already here, it is in your neural network. Every innovation that is going to be discovered is already in the room with you. We're just not advanced enough biologically to see the codes yet or to figure out the codes yet. But those codes are already here. We're not creating them. We're discovering them. I mean, maybe maybe we are just, maybe the simulation has always been right here in front of us, and we're just slowly, biologically, technologically coming to an awakening to be able to see it. It feels like in a lot of ways, we're just trying to use our algorithm to categorize all the ingredients of reality and then turning those ingredients into something new by mixing them in ways that weren't in existence because it seems like that's a lot of what our role is as these mediators in the feedback loop we kind of stand between the ingredients list that exists the categorization that our mind can give that ingredients list and then the output that we can put back into the world um, to create new symbols that then draw back into the feedback system and give us another ingredient to work with like if we want to make electricity, we need to get electrons. We need to get, you know, the building blocks for that. And so in a lot of ways, each of these new technologies kind of seem like more refined words to describe the ingredients we already have. Does that make sense? It's exactly, it's exactly right. And again, every code that you need to create the next in innovation is, is in nature. That's where it comes from. That's where the inspiration comes from. That's where, you know, we, we draw inspiration from physics and physics is the physical world. That's, that's what we're, we're, we're discovering um, what's already there. You know, we, we are working um, in the realm right now. Uh, this is sort of a new um, place for us to be as a species. We are working in the world of digital magic right now. and. I know that you know academics don't want to hear that, but that's exactly what's happening. If you had said to someone in the 1300s that you would be in a metal rocket going from city to city in, in several hours' time in the future, that you'd be flying in a metal bird, they would have burned you at the stake. This idea that we get accustomed to the age that we're in and we forget how miraculous uh, the world is. And, and, and just think about the future and how much more miraculous a future is going to be based on how we think, you know, we think, Oh, you can't record dreams. That's impossible. Well, get ready because it's coming. And for the, for the people that live in the future that are recording their dreams, selling their dreams, trading their dreams, downloading their dreams into virtual reality landscapes for people to share when there's a dream social network. Okay. And when that's common for them, 
they won't be able to think the way that you and I feel right now, where that seems like magic. They're not going to see it that way. They're going to, you become accustomed to the technological age that you live in, and it doesn't seem like magic anymore. So a lot of times the hardest part in being a futurist is getting people to sort of lose the luster of the magic that you're describing when you talk about the future and try to get them to see that this is actually tangible, that the, that try to get them to not be so astonished not fall prey to astonishment as Terence McKenna used to say. Would you say that's a, the key ask of the world in many ways? So, you know, at Singularity University, one of our big things is starting off with a shift in mindset. That's mm-hmm. kind of where we like to start with things. Yep. So from what you see the average person thinking about to where you are thinking about things, what do you think that distance looks like? What is the shift in mindset that you would plead for people to consider in order to help bring them in greater alignment with maybe the reality of this transformation that we're going through. Any you you could just pull anything out of the bag that we we talk about as futurists and a majority of people are still so shocked by it. They're so unaware that this, that these emerging technologies are actually real. That's the real challenge for for what you guys are doing at Singular University and and what futurists do on a daily basis is to educate the mass um, public and help them realize that this is not science fiction, that this is actually really happening. And it's happening at such a exponential rate that it's hard for futurists to keep up, that things change so quickly that it's hard for people who are even describing emerging technologies to keep up with it. That is why I've, I've sort of taken my message to um, YouTube and I've done a lot of television is because I'm trying to say to not just the academic community, not just the foresight community, I'm trying to say to the average person, this is what's coming. And it's going to be such a paradigm shift that it will fracture your consciousness if you're not keeping up with it. And we sort of touched on how um, psychotic this can make people. I mean, social media has has hurt a lot of, of younger um kids because they don't have the capacity to deal with that digital reflection as we've talked about they don't i mean adults don't even have that capacity but we're expecting children to have that capacity do you think that has a lot to do with the the conflict of stories that are happening in the world for instance you know it almost seems like a cliche now to ask a futurist or anybody interested in technology how they feel about the robot apocalypse or you know something like that where it's like we watched one of these videos of boston dynamics and the the first million comments are like that's going to kill all of us so it's this constant like narrative of of film and storytelling and it feels like in in some ways what we're pleading for maybe is not just education but education that's packaged in a story that is more maybe just more empathetic to the human condition and maybe a little bit more honest about what might come about I mean, there are good things and there are bad things. There always will be. Uh, I'm not scared of the machines. I've said this before. I'm not scared of the robots. I'm scared of the people coding the machines. That's what I'm scared of. Because we've done more work to increase the algorithms and our knowledge of algorithms and our knowledge of robotics than we have on ourselves. And to me, that's what the digital philosophy movement is all about. The, the techno-philosophy movement is really about saying that there are reasons 
why these technologies are emerging right now. You know, one question that I never hear anyone ever ask is why is AI emerging right now? What is the reason? What is the purpose? There has to be an evolutionary purpose to this. Otherwise, it wouldn't have made it this far. Do you think it's kind of a, not a last resort, but maybe the impetus is that need to do self-work and maybe we need the AI to help us do the self-work? I mean, me personally, I always feel a little at odds with my message to people because I want to promote technology in a lot of ways because I'm very much a techno-optimist. I strongly believe in what technology is capable of and I don't fear really merging with it. But I do think that we need to do a lot of, you know, personal, psychological, emotional work for ourselves as people, because I think the only way we really end up with the kind of technology that I'm promoting and that I'm optimistic about is by creating people who have less fear in their lives, more, you know, as cliche as it may sound, but more Mm -hmm. love in their life, more connection, more sense of purpose and meaning, more empathy. And it feels like we kind of need to get that for ourselves before we can imbue it into the machines. Well, that's why I think when you see movements um, start to emerge in culture, there are reasons for that that exist cosmically and evolutionarily. And so when I started really hearing about the microdosing movement that was going on in Silicon Valley, I thought, oh, this makes total sense. Because I think even if it's not conscious, unconsciously in the unconscious mind people have people have felt what's what's happening they have felt it they maybe couldn't put their finger on what it was called they couldn't put their finger on who was doing it where it was coming from but they had this feeling that something was off and there was an increase in hostility there was an increase in uh, vulgarity there was an increase in um narcissism or whatever you could you could name a million reasons why people started to feel this and so i i almost expected to see some sort of psychedelic revolution sort of come back and be sort of pushed into the technological uh, culture and that's what we're starting to see and i think some of it has to do with people wanting to feel connected to the self, connected to the internal landscape that exists within them. But, you know, going back to the idea of Terrence McKenna, he was really the extreme version of, of what's happening right now. And I actually think that, that we need more of, of that happening. We need the more extreme version of someone coming forward and saying, this is not just about microdosing. If we're, if we're really going down this digital psychedelic road, then maybe nature should be the guide. Maybe psilocybin should be our guide into what's about to happen. Um, I, I don't want to go too deeply into this, and, and people who are familiar with Terrence McKenna already know what I'm talking about, but there is an evolutionary connection between psilocybin and human culture, um, how it developed, how it continues to develop, and I think it's going to have a resurgence that's going to affect technology. Yeah. It seems like in some ways it might be a way to polish the mirror, uh, so to speak with mm-hmm. the, with the microdoses, because I think we're in this kind of arms race between, you know, ego and uh, 
connection to something greater than ourselves. And it's it's kind of like every now and then we need to check in and make sure that the reflection we're looking at to gain to get our guidance from uh, needs a little bit of polishing before we can move forward. Because if we go too long without polishing the mirror, then we start getting this really distorted reflection. And that's what we start building into our technology. You know, if, if we're part of that feedback process and what we're seeing internally when we look inside, when we look in that mirror is something that is not been um, maintained very well, we're likely to to put out something into the world that doesn't have a really unifying idea, <laughs> not, a, not a really beautiful... Not a really beautiful creation to put back into the feedback loop. Yes. I mean, you have to, and this is just a personal philosophy of my own, but um, I am constantly questioning my own sense of reflection, my own sense of my internal landscape. And that, that internal landscape is continually changing because as we age and as our, our, culture starts to shift over time you are building on your own personal algorithm you know so it is it is very um beneficial to to continually sort of break that down and look at it and i don't mean just the surface because that would just be narcissism it's not about how we look it's not about how we present ourselves to the world it is it, it's not even about what we say it is about that internal visualization and construct of reality because that has a lot to do with what we build and what we make if you're in if your visualization and your internal construct of reality is based on fear and narcissism the products that you manifest are going to reflect that we already know that um, your behavior will reflect that the algorithm algorithms that you create will reflect that yeah absolutely how would you suggest people be positive architects of the future? Or in other words, as a futurist, because I, I feel like this might be a good point to kind of close on. Mm-hmm. As a futurist, what do you recommend people do to prepare themselves for this transformation in a way that doesn't overwhelm them and that also hopefully even empowers them? I think the first thing is that we need to start to be honest with ourselves, um, which is a very difficult thing for us to do because we are we are still living under the pressure of old narratives that have kept us in check culturally for a very long time. We need to get rid of those. We need to break those open and we need to see new future narratives that make sense for this age, for this time. You're starting to see it with this new generation. They're they're saying the old narratives just they're not working for them. They're seeing that it didn't work for the generation uh, before them, and they're, they're just refusing to deal with these old narratives. And they're creating new narratives that are really, really inspiring uh, to see. Um, I like the idea of the architects of the future because um, that is what we are. I mean, we are building the scaffolding that will will sort of inhabit um that the algorithm will inhabit for the future we're just at the beginning of that right now and if we can help people understand that the old narrative um of shame and the old narrative of poverty the old narrative of having your your self-worth be connected to your hard labor 
uh, that needs to be done away with. That, that is an old narrative. Your self-worth is not based on your job. Your self-worth is based on you. It's based on your internal mind. It's, a, it's based on your visualization of, of who you are and who you could be in the world. That's where your self-worth comes from. Beautiful. We'll leave it there. Thank you so much, uh, Gray, for joining us and for having such a in-depth and wide-ranging and fantastic philosophical conversation. Thank you for having me.